0: So we'll turn now to the Word of God. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning now to Philippians chapter 4. Remember, last week we took a look at that story in Mark chapter 9. It was uh, the story of a man who was desperate to have his son set free from a demon that had been troubling him for years, and he went to Jesus about it. And remember the exchange back and forth between Jesus and that desperate father. The man said to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So we focused last week on the faith that was expressed in that statement, I believe, as well as the lack of faith that was confessed in that statement, help my unbelief, as well as the prayer that was prayed after all that man did ask Jesus to help him, And we do as well. And Jesus said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Listen to that again. All things are possible for one who believes. And that tees us up well for Philippians 4. Because here in this passage, Paul says something very similar. So Philippians 4, as you can see, I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. Down through verse 13. Listen now to the Word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for it because we are ever mindful of just how much we need it, for light goes forth from your Word. Indeed, your Word is light, and we live in a dark world. So would you now illumine our path? Would you illumine our hearts? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to gift-giving, The old saying is, What do you get for the man who has everything? Well, what we've got before us here is a slight variation on that theme, maybe more than slight. When it comes to Philippians 4, the saying might be, What do you expect to hear from a man who's been unjustly imprisoned and beaten, and yet who knows that he still has everything? What would you expect to hear? from a man like that in a circumstance like that. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in Roman custody. And not only that, but he was writing to a church that was located in a city where he had been beaten and unjustly imprisoned. And yet what he knows about himself is that he has everything because he has Christ, and Christ has him. And it's that man who can write these words that we've just heard, words about contentment. Before we get out our magnifying glasses and take a closer look at these words in chapter 4, just a little bit of background here. Remember what's going on when Paul writes this letter. Paul had gone to Philippi previously. He preached the gospel there, and so a church got started there, but then he had to move on. That was the nature of Paul's work. He would move on and preach the gospel in other places, but he certainly did not forget about the Christians that he left behind in Philippi, and they didn't forget about him either. The background behind this letter is that the Christians in the city of Philippi had sent the Apostle Paul a financial contribution to support him in his ministry. He had moved on from Philippi. But the Philippian Christians knew that he'd moved on with financial needs that needed to be met so that he could keep going in the way that he wanted to. And so they sent him a financial contribution to support him, and now he's writing this letter back to them to give thanks for the gift that they've given So, verse 10, which I just read for us, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me, for you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So, the willingness to support Paul on behalf of these Philippian Christians, that that willingness was already there. It's just that now they've got a new opportunity to show it and to help meet his needs. A little bit later in this same chapter, Paul sheds a little bit more light for us on what was going on. Look at verse 14. This is beyond our passage today, but it's helpful. Verse 14, he says, "'It was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only.'" Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So that's the background here. They've sent him contribution to help him. He's grateful, although he's grateful not chiefly for the gift, but for what he knows this is going to mean in their lives that they have dealt kindly with Paul in this way. Of course, he's grateful for what they've sent, but more profoundly, he's grateful for them and what the gift says about them and and the blessing that it can be and is to give as they have. So that's the background here, and that's why Paul starts talking about contentment here at the end of the letter. Look again at verses 11 and 12 says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the clincher, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's think about two main themes that leap off the page here in what Paul has to say. And this is how we'll go about it. First, we're going to think about contentment. And then secondly, we're going to think about strength. Because both of them are here. The contentment that Paul had learned and the very strength of Christ that had brought that contentment about in his own heart. So contentment. Paul's writing back to them. He's received this gift from them. And it leads him to say what he says here. And what, what is contentment, this thing that Paul had come to know and that he could testify about? What exactly is contentment? Well, a short and sweet defini- definition of it would be to say, contentment is having a sense that you have what you need. It's having a sense that you have what you need. You're sufficiently supplied, and not only that, but you know it. You feel it. You feel it within. You feel a kind of peace and rest and satisfaction. Contentment is having a sense that you have what you need. That doesn't necessarily mean that you presently have everything that you're eventually going to have. Because for the Christian, one aspect of the contentment that he experiences and feels is his hope for the world to come. That hope is itself one of the things that we need. And the Christian has it. He has that hope. Contentment is having a sense that you have what you need. And the Apostle Paul had that. He was marked by that kind of contentment. And he says it here. And notice... More to the point, the Apostle Paul says here that he learned contentment. This was something that he had to learn. Verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, he doesn't go into detail here about the lessons that he had to learn That make for contentment, but it's not hard for us to fill in the blanks, knowing what we know about Paul and about his life, about his letters, about his ministry. What we know about the gospel itself—it must have involved learning in new ways that his father loved him and that he could trust in his father to provide for him. It must have involved learning that in Jesus Christ he'd come into the possession of a glorious. Salvation that would never be taken away. It must have involved learning that by the power of the Holy Spirit He would certainly be preserved for the world to come. So yeah, it's Trinitarian. The love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the power of the Spirit. Paul learned that he had what he needed. And Paul learned what it felt like And what it looked like in his own life to have a sense of that. And the way that he learned it was having to think about it and pray about it and practice it in a wide variety of circumstances. And he says that here as well. That's how he learned. Not just by reading books about contentment, though there's a place for that. But by a combination of theory and practice and prayer. That's how he learned. And it's always been interesting to me that he had to learn that. Not just in times of being low and hungry and needy. We get that, right? That's obvious. But also, he says, in times of abundance and plenty. That's perhaps not so obvious that you've got to learn contentment in seasons of abundance and prosperity, but it actually makes perfect sense because it's in seasons like those, seasons of abundance and plenty, that you've got to learn that it's not finally your earthly abundance and plenty that make for contentment. You've got to learn in those times that that's a very shaky foundation to stand and build and live on, and it is tempting to build on it. You can easily fall into that trap when you're doing well. And so you've got to learn that even then, even when things are going well, that what makes for real contentment is the love of the Father, the grace of the Spirit, the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit. In whatever situation, as Paul puts it, that's always going to be the key to having a profound sense that you have what you need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then notice again how he puts it in verse 12. Paul sheds further light on this learning program that he's been immersed in. How does he put it in verse 12? He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned the secret. When he puts it that way, I have learned the secret. The word that he uses there is a word that people often used in those days, in Paul's days, when they were talking about being initiated into some kind of secret religious society, the so-called mystery religions of the Greek and Roman world. The word that Paul uses here, that's the way it was often used. People would use it to say something like, I've been initiated I've been made a member of this secret society where people have access to these uncommon insights into reality and they participate in these mysterious rituals that only belong to the community and you dare not tell anyone else about them. Now, obviously, that is not what Paul's talking about here, though he's using the word. He's not talking about being initiated into some secret religious society that you dare not tell anyone else about. In fact, you can almost imagine that he uses the word tongue-in-cheek. He uses a word that his readers might have recognized, but they also would have recognized that he's not using it in that way. He's not talking about finding access into some secret society. He's talking about being initiated by Christ into what we might call a contentment curriculum. And there's nothing secret about it in the sense that it's kept from view and you dare not tell anyone. Paul has learned the secret and here he is going public with it. He's been initiated by Christ. He's been enrolled by Christ into a contentment curriculum. And, And it's all the more powerful when you think about Paul's own life. And I mean Paul's own life of learning. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee. And so he was trained, he was well trained in that particular Jewish approach to God's truth. And he studied with the best. Studied with a rabbi named Gamaliel. We're told that in the book of Acts. And not only did he study with the best, but Paul was the best. As a student, he was a star student. He was the best learner under the best learning from a Pharisee's perspective. And then, you might say, thinking about Paul's conversion, that dramatic conversion, then Paul was transferred to another school. These days, there's a lot of buzz in the world of college football, about student-athletes having the freedom to transfer to another school, which wasn't always the case the way it is now. Well, Paul was transferred from one school into a very different one, transferred by another. The Lord Jesus, whom he once hated, appeared to him and turned his heart so that now Paul loved him, so that Paul would now learn from him. Christ transferred Paul into his own school. And and remember how Jesus himself describes it in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is converted. Jesus says, go, that is, go to this Saul of Tarsus, he's saying to a Christian. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he says this, and this always makes me tremble. Jesus says about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him. I will teach him. He's going to learn from me now. It's as if Jesus said to Paul in that moment when he converts and calls him, it's as if Jesus said to him, Saul, you're in my class now. And isn't that the way a teacher will sometimes stand before his students and and get their attention and, and take a stand for their own place and authority as a teacher? The teacher will look out at the students and say, you're in my classroom now. And so Jesus says to Paul, you're my student now. You can forget about Gamaliel. You can forget about all of those high-profile rabbis that you studied with in the past. I'm your teacher now. And this is what I'm going to teach you. And this is how I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you contentment. I'm going to teach you what it means and what it feels like and what it looks like to have the deepest possible sense that you have what you need in any and every circumstance. And this is how I'm going to show you. You're going to suffer in order to learn it because you're in my classroom now. Like when he was in Philippi. Philippi. I mean, you've got to think, the people who are getting this letter from Paul, who are hearing it read in the assembly of the saints, many of them would have known about Paul being beaten and unjustly imprisoned in their city. Maybe most of them, maybe all of them, maybe some of them had even witnessed it. So when Paul says this to them, I've I've learned, I've learned the secret of contentment. He's got credibility in their eyes. He's got standing to say it. Because they know Paul, and they remember remember him as a student enrolled in the classroom of Christ. And what it took for him, even in their own city, to learn in a new way the secret of contentment. I do enjoy talking to students about what, what they're learning in school. And they're, if they're college students, it's fun to hear about what their course schedule is like any given semester. Maybe it's physics for English majors. Maybe it's English for physics majors. Well, Paul could say, I'm taking contentment 101. Paul could say, let me tell you about it. Paul could say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. About this class I'm enrolled in, let me tell you about what I'm reading and let me tell you about my field work and my lab experience. And not just for one semester. I regularly get emails from the UVA Alumni Association with the subject line, Lifetime Learning, in the spirit of Mr. Jefferson, Lifetime Learning. Well, that's what Paul had enrolled in. Not just one semester. Of contentment training. But a lifetime of it. He says here, I have learned it. But of course, even as he says that, he knows very well, and the Philippians know it too, that the learning goes on. It goes on for a lifetime. Contentment. So that's the first of our two headings here. Contentment. And then the second of them, as I was saying before, is strength. Strength, because Paul says, I can do all things. After saying what he says about contentment and learning it and, and how he's learned it, he can then go on to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's the Apostle Paul now enrolled in Christ's contentment curriculum. And here's the good news. This was a class in which the student was set up for success. And we all know not every class is like that. How very different this class. This was a class in which the student was certain to learn the material and learn it well and learn it deeply. Not every class is like that. Not every learning experience ends well. That's why there's a drop-add period in college at the beginning of the semester, emphasis on drop. They call it drop-add. But there's usually more dropping going on than adding but not this one. This wasn't a class that Paul was going to have to drop. And that's because this was a class in which the teacher, unlike any other teacher, actually had and still has the power to make sure that his students get the material. And not only get it, but actually learn to love it. Verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him Who strengthens me? I can do all things, including possessing and exhibiting contentment in whatever circumstance. This was not a class that Paul was going to have to drop. He was going to get it. He had gotten it, he was learning it, and that's because God was at work in him, strengthening him, enabling him to possess and exhibit contentment. And how reassuring that must have been and and still should be. Because it is a daunting syllabus. I mean, you know how it goes. You you go in for the first day of class, or maybe you, you see the syllabus online, and you start flipping through it, or you start scrolling down through it, and it can feel a little daunting at first to see the material that's going to be covered. It can be daunting at first as it dawns on you what this class is going to require of you this class that you're not going to drop. must have been that way for Paul, the lessons that he had to learn, the hardships that were a part of learning them. But the point is, it wasn't going to be beyond him, beyond his capacities. This was not going to be a spiritual impossibility for Paul. He can say, no, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, including learning and exhibiting contentment. It's quite a statement. Just to hear Paul say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, it would be very easy to take that statement out of context, I mean, out of the context that is the whole of the Bible, and distort it, twist it, misunderstand it, and you know this is a statement that's been treated that way. If you do take it out of context, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you do read it superficially, you could easily come away with the impression that Paul's saying that there are no limits at all to what the believer can do in this life. So long as you're relying upon the strength of Jesus. And so it starts to sound like a way of honoring Jesus and magnifying his strength to say there are no limits whatsoever to what the believer might accomplish in this life. And if you, if you come away with that impression of what Paul's saying here, well, then you can come to the conclusion that there are no miracles that I cannot perform because I'm a believer. There are no heights that I can reach in any earthly pursuit because I'm a believer, strengthened by God. I don't need to be concerned that a course of action I'm contemplating might turn out to be foolish and futile because I'm a believer strengthened by God. And I don't need to be wary about any temptation to sin as if it might prove too much for me. No, I don't have to worry about that because I'm a believer, strengthened by God. But that is nonsense to come to the conclusion or to even entertain the notion that there's nothing I can't do, no wonders I can't work, no mountains I can't scale, no games I can't win, no challenges I cannot handle. That's nonsense. I wish I could sing like a young Tony Bennett. For that matter, I wish I could sing like an old Tony Bennett. And Christy and I heard him in concerts just a few years back. Stunning. I wish I could play guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Christy might not want that. But I can't. Not going to happen. And I can't perform miracles, and I can't win every game, and I can't stare down every challenge. There are all sorts of things that the believer cannot do, and it's not because he's not believing enough or because he's not believing the right things. It's simply because that's not what Philippians 4.13 means. When he says, I can do all things, through him who strengthens me. What he means is all things that God has called me to do and to be. In other words, it's the all things within the parameters of God's own purposes. That's how we understand what Paul's saying here. All things that God has called me to do and to be. Well, one of those things, one of those callings is contentment. That you learn it in Christ, and that you show in so many different ways that you have, that you can do. That's something that you can learn and exhibit by the grace of God who strengthens you. So it's worth underlining here. Yes, we've had to do some work clarifying what Paul means when he says, I can do all things. It's worth underlining. This is really good news that it means what we've just said it means and not what you might think it means if you take it out of context. This is is really good news. And the reason I say that's worth underlining is that um, you you could imagine somebody being disappointed with that. You could imagine somebody saying, well, you know, when I read I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, I thought that meant the sky was the limit for me. I thought that meant there were no limits for me at all, nothing I can't do, no mountains I can't scale. Now you're telling me that it is limited. Now now you're telling me that it has to do with things like contentment? That's boring. You told me we're going to talk about the power of God at work in my life. I thought we were going to start talking about real, real fireworks and impressive displays, and now we're talking about contentment. That's a letdown. So the objection might come. But to think like that, to to respond like that, even to suspect that a little bit, that only proves that you don't fully realize what a beautiful and powerful and thrilling thing contentment is. In the kind of world we're living in. A world in which people are tossed back and forth and up and down on the waves of turmoil and discontentment. And losing sleep because of that turmoil. And abusing painkillers because of those waves taking their own lives. All because of the turmoil of discontentment in a world like this, to have a deep sense of peace and rest and satisfaction that comes from knowing that you have all that you need and that yours is the hope of the world to come. And to have that because of the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, that's no letdown, that's no disappointment. And there is nothing boring or disappointing about that. That is beyond gold. The 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a whole book on this one passage, and the book was entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he was right. Right. It is a jewel, and in a world like this, thinking about the world as a whole, it is rare. So thank God for his power at work in our lives doing this. I don't need spiritual fireworks and impressive displays. I need this, which is beautiful and powerful and thrilling. I need to learn this by the love and the grace and the power of God, that I have everything I need, no matter what comes my way, no matter what he appoints for me. So you see how contentment and strength are two headings today. Do you see how they actually, perhaps surprisingly, go hand in hand? Because a lot of people think they don't. In a lot of people's eyes, being content means being weak because they think contentment means just quitting, giving up, and settling for the way things are though they are not as they ought to be. It means that you're just too tired or too frightened or too unconcerned to get up off the couch and do something and seek change and make a difference. So people think that, people suspect that, that being content means being weak, but it's just the opposite. Real contentment takes strength a strength that the very strength of God has worked in you because it takes strength of character it takes steel to resist the temptation to envy other people what they have that you don't it takes strength and steel to resist the temptation to question God's goodness and to go scurrying off desperately for more possessions, thinking that's what will finally get you a good night's sleep. Especially because we are living in a world like this, in which possessing and practicing contentment is very much to swim upstream. So, brothers and sisters, contentment and strength those two. And now to, to tie a bow around them together. Fix your eyes on Christ. And think about your Savior for a minute. Contentment and strength. Because this too is a matter of Jesus reproducing his character in you. This was true of Jesus as he walked among us. It was true of Christ that he... Learned contentment. Think about what it says about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's Hebrews 5.8. Well, that obedience to his father's word, surely that would have included contentment with his father's purposes. Jesus had to learn that Now, in his case, he did not have to unlearn sin and falsehood the way we do. He didn't have to unlearn discontentment the way we do. But he did, Jesus did have to learn contentment in the sense that he had to learn in his own experience, in his own true human experience, what it meant and what it felt like and what it looked like to have a sense that he had everything he needed. And he did learn it. And of course, he learned it perfectly. So yes, contentment learned by Jesus. And second of all, it was also true of him that he could do all things through his Father who strengthened him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't often think about Jesus in those terms, but we should, we must, in his true humanity, in his true humanity, your Saviour, was enabled by the power of the Spirit to do and to be everything that he was called by his Father to do and to be, including this, resting contentedly in what his Father had appointed for him. So for us to learn contentment, for us to come into the experience of contentment by the power of God, that is to have the character of Christ reproduced in us after all. That's one of the things that makes him such a sympathetic high priest and the best of friends seated at his Father's hand right now. He understands. He remembers. You can go to him and say, Lord Jesus, teach me contentment. Teach me what you learned. You can go to the one who has enrolled you in his class, in his curriculum, and you can say, yes, thank you, teach me. Teach me what you learned. And he will, and he does. And isn't that the best kind of teacher? You know those teacher evaluation forms that students are sometimes asked to fill out at the end of the semester with questions like, did the professor exhibit a personal grasp of the material?" Did the professor demonstrate an evident love and enthusiasm for the material? Did the professor demonstrate an evident concern for the welfare of his students? Jesus is the best of teachers. The class is contentment 101 and it is the best kind of class. So, Christian, all that we've Covered here this morning. Take it to heart. Take to heart these truths about contentment. Thanks to the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the power of the Spirit, you do have everything that you need in this life, including the hope of the life to come. And that's true in whatever circumstance the Lord brings your way, but you're going to have to learn that. We all have to learn that. And the good news is Jesus has enrolled you in the class so that you will. You've been initiated. You can expect him to take you through the training program, not just classroom, but also field and lab work. And you can expect it to be painful, but it's worth it because contentment really is a rare jewel. Expect him to take you through the training program. And as you look over the syllabus and consider again what this class is all about, what it entails, what it involves, what it's going to require of you, Christian, get with the program. Lean in to this study, which means getting yourself in the Word and getting yourself on your knees in prayer and getting yourself connected to fellow Christians because Contentment 101 is not a private, independent study. We are classmates here, even those of us here in this room. So let's learn together by getting together and sharing what we're learning, contentment, and then strength. Christian, take that part personally too, strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Christian, you can say that too. That's not just a relic from the first century. That's God's Word. That was Paul's testimony in the first century and now it can be yours in this one. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That does not mean that you can do absolutely anything. It's better. Because it means that the callings of God can be realized in your life including contentment. The callings of the Christian life are not some kind of cruel joke held out for you, God knowing all the while that you can't really pull it off. No, the callings of Christian discipleship are possible and real because God can pull it off, the God who strengthens you to that end. So, brothers and sisters, let's not shrink back from contentment 101. Our teacher is the best. The material really is a rare jewel, and by the strength of the Almighty, we shall learn it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this rare jewel, and for the work that you've begun in our lives, teaching us this secret, this open secret, this public secret, learning to be content, thanks to your love and grace and power. Continue to deal with us according to your strength, that in this respect we might show ourselves to be strong too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.